0: treat people with respect, build consensus, collaborate when possible, be active in your community. And you know, my father, used to always, he had many sayings, but one of the ones I remember the most is just because you can, doesn't mean you should.
1: Hi, this is Matt Sleppen and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is a conversation with Nevio Mosser, the CEO of the Mosser Companies based here in San Francisco. We recorded our interview live and in person in my kitchen, which I must tell you is my first in-person podcast interview since before COVID. It was a pleasure. Nevio leads a fascinating second-generation family business that operates mostly in the multifamily space. His father founded the company in the 1960s. They've owned many of their generational assets now for decades. Mosser specializes in owning and managing rent-stabilized apartments in the Bay Area and also in Southern California. Mosser is one of a handful of sharpshooter companies that operate in this niche in the business. As he will explain, there are two sides of the Mosser business, the owner-operator side, and a relatively new business, Mosser Capital, which invests in this asset class for third-party capital. Nevio and I discussed the dynamics and drivers of his business, how they fared through COVID in San Francisco, a market that overall saw some of the largest rent drops in the country, in the dynamics of his career path as a second-generation business leader. My thanks to our company TerraSearch Partners for sponsoring Leading Voices. TerraSearch works with companies like Mosser to help build their leadership teams. Every company has a different story and different needs, but the requirement for great talent who can bring industry best practices, who can add to the growth, resiliency, and diversity of perspective and background within an organization, and who will team successfully within an existing organization, is universal and what we do at TerraSearch. This conversation with Nevio was one of several conversations we've had recently on leading voices with black leaders of real estate investment and operating companies. I welcome you to revisit my conversations with Daryl Carter from Avaneth, Robin Hughes from Abode Communities, and Tammy Jones from Basis Investment Group. I hope that you're enjoying the show. If you are, please listen to these and some of the other back episodes from the archives. Please share the series with your friends in the industry, and as always, if you have comments or questions, please email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Enjoy the show. Nevio Master. welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I'm happy to have you on the show, and we both live in San Francisco, but we're actually in Sonoma in my kitchen talking today, and you are the first person live in person I've done in a year and a half. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you. It's an honor to be at your
1: home. So maybe start with kind of a little bit of an elevator pitch about who you are, what is it you do, what your portfolio looks like in your business. Well, let's say uh, I'm
0: Nevio Mosser. I've been uh, with uh, Mosser Companies for probably close to 40 years now. I'm currently serving as the CEO of Mosser Companies and as the chairman of the board for Mosser Capital which is another offshoot or affiliated company within
1: our list of companies. Mm-hmm. And and this, you've been there 40 years, but your father started the business, so maybe you've been there your whole life. Actually, uh, my father did start the business uh,
0: as a brokerage back in the uh, mid to late 50s out in uh, Avenues wow. um, when you couldn't give away homes in San Francisco. so And we've kind of grown, and we're definitely grown and we've actually changed our way of uh, what we do and what we deliver over
1: the years. So, and what's the portfolio look like and what's the headline of what it is you own and what you do?
0: I run the, uh, oversee more of the operational side of the business. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, pre-COVID, we were at about 320 employees, probably now somewhere closer to about 250. Mm -hmm. The company found the there's quite a bit of benefits of being vertically integrated. So we do everything from janitorial, maintenance, apartment renovations, construction, management, project management, all the typical property management functions as well. Mm-hmm. And then recently, when we started Mosser Capital, that was a um, you know after a lot of research quantifying how well we've done because we always seem to be hoarders for data. I have plenty of basement storage spaces around the Bay Area, we were made, realized that it was a unique opportunity for the family's business to grow at a faster rate than it typically does organically by going ahead and taking in partners or investment capital from others outside of the family.
1: Uh-huh. We'll come back to that. And sticking with the elevator pitch for a second, you own apartments, maybe a couple of hotels. How many different apartment buildings, how many units, and what's the geography of where you do your stuff?
0: Well, we we originated in San Francisco and, and then expanded out in the Bay Area to Oakland. I mean, then recently, uh, approximately five years ago, we began an expansion into uh, Southern California, primarily Hollywood and the Koreatown markets there. We're constantly looking at new areas for opportunities for us to grow, but that's where we are geographically located right now. Our properties range anywhere from a small four-unit building all the way up to 4 four-unit towers.
1: And how much is rent control? Because for me, that's the headline of your portfolio. I think
0: we have more rent stabilization here. I would say that 94% of our units are under rent stabilization of some sort.
1: And what's the dynamics of that business how do you make money at something that's rent stabilized where you're what the constraints relating to that are especially if you're going to hold it long term so how does that work
0: well we you know we concentrate on in demand urban markets and then we concentrate on more what we call workforce housing which is another form of affordable housing but it's Mm -hmm. not government subsidized affordable housing so for us, we're routinely looking for properties that have been mismanaged or poorly managed or in need of capital infusion or where there's new regulatory laws that have an effect on their operations, such as all buildings having to be sprinklered or soft story seismic work that stimulate people to go ahead and sell. And we come in as an investor and operator and have found ways that we're able to do more for less because we're vertically integrated. And our thing has never really been about in these urban areas that we operate within we're usually looking at smaller unit sizes which have their own sense of natural turnover mm-hmm. as people partner you know come form partnerships and then need to go ahead and to move to a larger place because they have children or they want to relocate out of San Francisco for or Oakland because of schools or and or the like so displacement is never something that we are actually prescribed to mm-hmm. it's actually Natural in a building for us is that they are having people that are actually just naturally vacating.
1: So, and drill down a little bit more. I'm I'm curious about that dynamic. And one of the headlines of people who do this is really cool when people move out because then we could pop the rents. So there's more rent growth in moves, and there's rent growth in just the natural rents that are then limited by the rent stabilization stuff. And and in your and I've heard of abuses in this world. I just remember this story. This is a crazy one, but there was some guy who like walked, this wasn't your properties, but there was some guy who walked around in a trench coat and he would help make people move (laughs) and there was dynamics to that happening. And then you could do really well economically on this, not your portfolio, but does exist in that side of the industry.
0: That potential for that. And we've seen it, we've seen it historically, you know, uh, with different operators over the last... 40 years I've been in existence. But yeah, and greed exists in almost all forms and shapes and sizes in various industries. And we've seen it. That's something that we've never prescribed to. We are here for the long haul. We want to always be, you know, felt that we've been good stewards and leaders in our community and working together to create change, positive change, not only for the neighborhood, but by going ahead and having, allowing our existing tenants there or older tenants that we've inherited, have a safer, better taken or well-maintained home. And then also by, you know, for us as we do renovations in units and, or in buildings, we're not prescribed to mass evictions, and which are very difficult to go ahead and do. And it's ethically not something that we feel comfortable with. So mm-hmm. our thing is to maintain, tenants in place and bring in improved buildings and bring in people that might have a little bit more disposable income so that they're helping, they're able to come in and help reinvigorate or make a community that's a community more vibrant by supporting local stores, new entrepreneurs that come into these areas that are operating retail, new retail establishments. And that's what we prescribe to.
1: And in... Therefore, releasing, if you're in a neighborhood, particularly in a place like San Francisco, where an average income of tenancy is X and rents are rising exponentially in the city, then when you release to the yuppie coder kind of person, you could get someone in with two, three times the income. Is that not the natural way of things? Or in your buildings, do the releasing come at a more moderate rate? And there's no regulator on that. Well, the, you know, we look at, there are some regulations as we have, like during, you know,
0: the pandemic, uh, it's about for mm-hmm. anti-price gouging measures. Right. And, but there is, uh, you know, for us, you know, there are many things that are, will help bring more people in that might not have wanted to consider a particular area. Mm-hmm. Usually what we're doing is we're buying around transportation nodes or places within, with uh, entertainment, close proximities of public transportation and entertainment. Mm-hmm. So, what we've always found is that there's, as um, the pressure, when there's great pressures that be on the supply side, that then people will consider these areas, especially when they're up and coming or if it's close enough to their work. Of course, this all changed after the pandemic. Right. Uh, <laughs> but that's, you know, what we're in. People are coming in, and San Francisco has always been a very transient city. Mm-hmm. And so people then look to, as they change, their careers change, they have family or lifestyle changes, then they tend to go ahead and to vacate and move on to either, you know, another larger unit or a different part of town or for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, it makes total sense. And uh, last question on this slide, but you have two companies, so there's Monster Companies and Monster Capital, and one has had the long-term hold for your whole career portfolio and now with Monster Capital, you're bringing in partners, which does change some dynamics. But talk about the difference between those two sides of your business, and then how that might drive things going forward. Well, we started
0: Monster Capital 11 years ago with uh, Jim Ferris. Uh, Jim Ferris is actually his family. He's married to my niece. He, cool. He stole my one of my best operations directors I've ever had. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but Jim is, uh, is great. We have this very unique yin-yang sort of op- uh, symbiotic relationship. And so, uh, you know, our strengths are together very formidable. Jim is, uh, you know, comes with years of experience and uh, more on the investment side, for mortgage financing side, and also just in the in capital markets. And so we did, you know, he went through literally prior to I would say, while we always kept a lot of data, just as being sort of data hoarders, he actually took the time coming out of business school to go ahead and to run through the data and then to kind of, and to know what we always assumed or that what we knew that we did well, but actually quantified it in a dollar amount of what we did and how we outpaced our local markets. Then we decided that if we, as a family, we had a life change in the family, my father had passed, and we were looking at hey what are other avenues for growth for us and how can we continue to grow this business this legacy business is what we refer to it as mm-hmm. we can grow it in a way that is a little bit different than our typical organic natural way of, of acquiring properties we've been working with partners or investors all our lives which are my sisters my you know my other family members so we went out and embarked upon becoming a very tried more institutional in our deliverables and our and in, in our governance, which took a quite a bit of time and a little bit <laughs> took some time for me getting used to, but it's actually I think served everyone very very well, and I think we've been very successful with going ahead and bringing on invest with investors and have been vetted by some of the some of the top companies in the world.
1: And are you able to raise patient capital, which is one of the holy grails of your side of the business? And I don't know what patient means, so <laughs> it's a loaded
0: question. That is a loaded question, patience. Well, I guess patience is a very subjective word. I think as a family and with our legacy business, we've established the, all of the benefits of, main, you know, of using longer-term horizons on the investments for not only creating but maintaining wealth. It's easy to go ahead and to play, you know, to try to play markets and to come in for the quick hit. And then again, what are you doing? And so for us, with having anywhere from 300 to 340 or 350 employees, we want to continue scaling and growing because we don't ever want to be in a situation because we're vertically integrated, is we have to lay people off because we have less units or right. portfolios to manage at our own. So we've looked at and we've had investment partnerships that have, Decided to make an exit far earlier than our business plans and successful, very, very successful efforts. And in many of those cases, we recapitalized and purchased that same portfolio because we knew there were still a lot of opportunities left within those buildings that we had not been able to execute on with our five, seven year business plan.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And with the capital coming in, are you able to do generational approach? Because one of the things you said early in the conversation was being a responsible landlord, if those were the words and not your precise words. But then if investors are looking at a five, seven year, they want to flip if they can because IRRs matter versus investors who come in, they're not patient, but they say, hey, I want to take a risk adjusted slower return and I'll be there in a long Hole for you. That's a different behavior pattern. There's a
0: different behavior pattern, but there's many different behavior patterns within the investor world. So finding people that are right and that's not just finding investors, but finding that people that are a right fit for us. And we do have the ability to go ahead in certain markets to cater our whole periods
1: and our mm-hmm. and our and our business plans. Cool. So, talk about COVID. So, were you ready for this? What happened? Did the company have the backbone to go? Okay, now we know how to work remotely and deal with this kind of crisis. COVID, you know, it's it's
0: been over a year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's kind of really hard to really really sink in. You know, as I was mentioning earlier, COVID is was I think a great op, even despite taking away all the negatives of people being very sick and losing work and 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 going deep into debt and. The stress that it put on our economy, but the stress on families. There were some things within that that, as we adapted to, I think that built a sense of strength within our company. So for us, being you know vertically operated, we're still providing. We have to actually provide a higher level of services to our tenants and our customers than we normally than most businesses would. So for us, it was an opportunity at those very early days. I remember, I think it's either March fifteenth or March sixteenth. Seeing, Uh hey, we're shutting down, right? And how we adapted, which was actually really incredible to see how people rolled up their sleeves to go ahead and to, you know, we were doing two hour long downloads on Zoom, which I'd never used prior to right. prior to the pandemic. And then same thing early in the morning. And, you know, we realized that as being an essential business, we, we're open and we're going to be actually having to work harder. And in right. some cases we're working harder, not expected to go ahead and to be able to collect for that as well. So for us it was a great opportunity to really build out our teams and created a, a greater sense of collaboration across all facets of our company.
1: Interesting. So, and for COVID, does the, so the team comes together in a different way, A. B, the people who are working at your properties are now frontline workers, a term we've never heard before, but you got frontline people. That's correct. And then you have to learn to have your regular employees be PPE'd and ready for frontline, whatever that means. Yeah.
0: That exercise, those early days, those early months of the pandemic right. was what I thought was incredible to see how necessity can go ahead and breed invention. And so uh, because we are vertically integrated and we also have our own warehouse, our warehousing and purchasing division and seeing the writing on the wall, we were buying up lots of hand sanitizers. Then when we couldn't find hand sanitizers, we were purchasing the chemicals or the materials to make it ourselves. We started uh, long before it was a requirement by the city. We were putting dispensers in the lobbies of all of our buildings. We were providing, started in doing enhanced cleanups and disinfecting of some of the areas where there are touch points or handrails or within elevators. So I think we were early adopters of, I think, of behaviors that were actually later codified as being requirements for operating in this environment.
1: Mm-hmm. And then how about residents? And did residents, you, you may or may not know what illness was in your residence or in your worker population, but then also were residents paying their rent? So how did that well, affect all this? And, and you're building average daily occupancy. How did that shift
0: well, let's see. Well, we saw, I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of responses to that. Yeah, just let me go a lot of questions. On <laughs> uh, first, how do we deal with our residents? Well, we've always tried to go ahead and keep in communication. So whether that's via telephone or whether it's through uh, online or through emails or and or the like, or just the old fashioned way of posting things in buildings. And so it was a little bit of everything on how we can go ahead and talk with them and communicate what we're doing. And how we're here to help. Obviously during that period of time, what we did see is that when people are staying home, a lot of work, that typical day-to-day work in a building had to go ahead and stop because when, you know when you have a population or half of your building is working during the daytime and they're working from, but now they have to work from home, normal noise that goes on by whether it's vacuuming or steam cleaning carpets have to be adjusted so that there's a sense of, people are able to go ahead and be at somewhat of some peace in their homes during this period of uncertainty. With us, we also during this period, we were seeing that there were a lot of people, there was just a lot of ambiguity and 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 fear and I won't say a lack of leadership, but of just of someone taking not say control, but just of being there so that there's somewhat soothing or comforting to people mm-hmm. so they because of the unknown. Um, so for us, well, you know, we looked at it and I was laughing about it, is that there was one of our offices has a target that's in the financial district right across the street. So we were looking at, we're hearing from tenants about, Hey, you know, we can't get we're older tenants, I, I can't leave the house. Can one of the guys go to the store for me and the like? So we just started buying toilet paper, paper towels, eggs, and foodstuffs. Every day, every time someone went to Starbucks or Pete's or went outside for a cigarette break or anything, they came back with these materials. Mm -hmm. And then we were actually, it made us feel really, I mean, personally, myself, it's uh, very emotional that we were able to help people who really needed help Mm -hmm. during that period of time who are people that were shut in for many different reasons on being able to get these things to them, not sell them to them, just to give them to them. Mm-hmm. And that's in keeping with kind of how we try to operate within the communities that we...
1: So I don't think about this. So you have a disabled or elderly resident. They're nervous or can't get out. And so you're, you can help them directly. Yes. Informally. Informally.
0: And we'll have someone over at your house... You know in a two hours and bringing a care packages so we started making these care packages and bring it out to the uh, various people that were in need hmm. during this period of time and it was never it's not in our standard operating it's not in our mops it's how not it there begins. it's just how we operate i think it what's what i received a email communication from a i think a 78 or 80 year old woman in one of the buildings and she had asked an employee if he would be able to go ahead and to help get to go to the store down the block to get her i think it was toilet paper and some just some food and he gave her pretty of a terse answer that was like no they're busy taking care of their own families they're here for work and that did not sit well with me i think anyone that heard me read this letter and i get emotional even talking about this yeah but that do. is not who we are and, um, you know, we reached out to her and then started doing proactive, reaching out to other people in the in various buildings, wherever they were, to go ahead and offer this assistance to them.
1: Mm-hmm. And collections? How were collections during each of the phases of
0: this? <laughs> it's varied. You know, it's really building by building. I've seen in some areas, I mean, it's it is literally varied. You know, I've seen areas where, you know, that have been good and then maybe fell back a little bit after the second wave. You know, I think we probably saw the worst probably in December of last year, but we've seen also collections come back. In some buildings, they never went down maybe 10%. Thank God the state was able to go ahead and to come up with rules and regulations that would go ahead and assist tenants and keeping them in place and then come back with, you know, a method for how things would be repaid and or how they're treated so that people didn't feel or lived in fear of them losing their housing, which at at the time might have been the only thing they possibly had, you know, it took away a lot of that fear. And so we learned how to operate with that. We were always working with our tenants on, hey, you could start paying in a year or this or that or various methods until since we got, um, you know, the state
1: bill that kind of set everything in place. (laughs) And Rents in San Francisco, overall on the market, I think we're off 25, 30 percent. I might be wrong about the specific number. How does that affect the place that you sit in this business? Well, again, it's
0: building by building. Right. So we've seen some of our pricing in certain locations probably go right, go back about 10 years or nine years back in um, in rental mounts. But what I have seen is I've seen um, positive rent growth every month, month over month since uh, January.
1: Mm-hmm. I would think, though, that in your buildings, because your rent stabilized, people who've been there for a little while are under market. They don't want to leave during COVID. Like some people say, hey, I'm going to go move to Dakota for the next year because it doesn't matter. They probably getting a pretty good deal from you so that that you may have less move out than in other buildings, but I don't know that. Really, that's an interesting question and complicated in that San Francisco has
0: always been a transient city. And Mm -hmm. so, yes, there's a segment of the population of very low-income people that are stuck in, in their apartments because of how low their rent is as compared to market. With the pandemic and the shelter in place, we saw a lot of very unusual trends. And what we saw were we saw people that were vacating, that had been, I wouldn't say hoarding, but staying into units for numerous years. Because as rents, you know, finally we saw there was something that happened and I think was very healthy what happened as far as to our market. It takes off a lot of the political pressures by going ahead and all of a sudden having this, uh, while you still have uh, lessening demand and increasing the supply. And we saw what happened. It kind of plays out the whole thesis that if you build more housing rents will go ahead and adjust. So we're we're seeing people that are going ahead and they're vacating but they're vacating or moving to an apartment maybe in a more affluent neighborhood or hey instead of ha- share, you know having two people sharing a one bedroom I can go get my own one bedroom now because rents have adjusted. So you're seeing a lot of migration within San Francisco zip codes and then for people that were leaving the city permanently these were the people that are they probably just in my opinion, that age old question of when do we leave so that we don't have to go ahead and to, you know, to get our kids into a better school system or mm-hmm. so we have space and or a different type of environment, it just accelerated that decision making. And then you had the other portion of that, which are the people that were their employers are saying, hey, well, either you know, you're going to, everything is going to be working from home and looking at it, it could be for six months or up to a year. Right. And why stay? Because mm-hmm. the things that make a city vibrant and the things that we look for in our urban environments, it's it's a sense of culture, it's hospitality, it's entertainment, being able to recreate, and it's uh, jobs. Mm-hmm. And if you take off everything the city we lost during this shelter in right. place, why would you stay here? So people were able to go ahead and move back home or go to you know that's why we see the migrations to every ski resort place and in in, you know or the Hawaii or there and to work from home remotely, right but that's changing now. And so many of the larger employees are already saying, hey, we're coming back to work this summer. Maybe it's on a two or three day a week thing. And we're seeing our occupancy increasing steadily each month since you know the vaccine has become more readily available. And each date or announcement that the city and the state is reopening, is causing more people to move back in.
1: Right, so why be in San Francisco if you can't go out to a restaurant? Why be in San Francisco if you can't go shopping or hang out or mobilize on the street if you're going to be in an apartment, be wherever you want to be? Exactly. Which is at the level of workforce housing level with rent-stabilized apartments, is that a more resilient, recession-resistant Do you have more recession-resistant dynamics in your portfolio? And you may not know the answer to this. It's very, very safe because we're not trying to always jump to market. So it's a slow
0: and steady pace. Uh It's about as recession-proof as I think you can go ahead and be within our industry, as long as you take out the equations for greed. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You've come back to the word greed a couple times in the conversation (laughs) and when we talked before, and- in a family long-term family business it's hard to behave that way so you have a long-term time horizon long-term view and you've used words to talk about your tenants and the way you manage your properties it's very personal to you extremely personal i mean i up until january of this year i still
0: i lived in one of our buildings and so <laughs> i think we have three generations uh, of monsters and breeze and and the likes that have actually lived in the buildings that uh, throughout all the neighborhoods that we have, in the, at least in the Bay Area. So for us, it's a sense of taking pride in what we do, whether it's, you know, I don't want to feel like, or we don't want to feel as I think as a family or as a business that, you know, the unit that we wouldn't feel comfortable
1: sleeping in that unit ourselves. Mm-hmm. Talk about the genesis of the business. And I guess you you say your father started something so, what was it that it looked like, and when did talk a little bit about the history of that, and then how you got into the
0: business? Well, let's see. I you know, my, my father started off as a real estate agent, and then he had a broke he had a brokerage company. I think at this point of time, in alert at this point of time in the '60s, I believe some of the more infamous owners of San Francisco all had offices in the 5100 block of Geary Street. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so he started doing that, and then realized that. You know, you could do you know. Managing a a group of thirty or forty agents is very difficult, and so he started going ahead and taking pieces of deals and opportunities, and then realized the what could be done by going ahead and investing. I think his first real, other than you know, a couple some development projects in Marin County, and then also one in I believe it's uh, what's now known I think Moss Beach or no, Irish Beach, in um, near Manchester State Park. You know, he got into San Francisco and uh, with that, I think the first big project was uh, the purchase of about, I think it's 11 buildings with about 117 units. That was a uh, bank sale, uh, what we now call uh, Frederick Douglas Plaza, which is about a block away from Alamo Square Park. Going from there, they took that and, you know, started going ahead and building out this vertical platform. And, you know, it kind of took off. And so we expanded not only throughout other areas of San Francisco, but then also into Oakland. And then, of course, much many, many years later after he passed, we just expanded into the uh, Los Angeles, Southern California markets.
1: And when did you come into the business? I was very lucky. My dad actually
0: started off at in high school, after school and on weekends, working as a janitor. Right. And so... I would work in SRO hotels or pretty bad establishments. I think on one way, it was a way for him to see what my fortitude was and whether or not I wanted to go ahead and leave and then, you know, to try a different business. And uh, so I've worked. And done almost every position there is to do within the within the business over my time, whether that's you know janitorial, working into re- repairs and maintenance, working with the electricians, um, property managers, resident managers. Less time on the accounting side, but even in working in the hospital on the hospitality side as well. So I have other family members that have taken that same path. Although none of them started off as janitors, some started off as line cooks <laughs> and are dishwashers. Well, but we've all worked. And so it's been a great opportunity not only for myself, but also for our investors and or other owners is that we know all the granular of everything that we do. And because of that, we know how you can go ahead and control costs. We can control costs in in things that we do on a daily basis.
1: I I love it. And you've been a longtime leader in the San Francisco business community. And you've been serving on the residential rent board for like 20 years. So just talk about being a civic member of the community, but then also overseeing something that you also do for a living. So talk about that. I think, um, you know, our
0: families instilled a sense of, um, you know, civic response and social responsibility to all the kids. Mm-hmm. That's just something that's not even, it's just, it's a requ- almost a requirement, but it's unwritten. So for, you know, coming in and my father ran the business a little bit differently mm-hmm. or more antiquated thought process in dealing with the city and dealing with tenants or dealing with vendors and so i when i came in and this is about maybe 1986 we took a different approach and as about that same time we were starting to expand in other areas of san francisco i think primarily into the tenderloin so for us you know being civically it's not only civically responsible but also social responsible having social responsibilities that comes with that owner owning property is um a tantamount to our success. So I served on the board of participated in a couple of industry trade associations, whether it's the San Francisco Apartment Association, California Apartment Association, Coalition for Better Housing, and then started doing more social work and on the board for the, what was the Tenderloin YMCA, the African American Cultural Center and the Fillmore. Um, numerous groups that, that come by and we, to this day, we still support many of these groups, even by still support black farmers of America as a hobby farmer. <laughs> And I spent about 22 years as a uh, mayoral appointee on the uh, San Francisco Rent Board Commission. And <laughs> the Rent board, board Commission, kind of what it does is it promulgates the rules and regulations of our ordinance. Most of our reg- law changes come by way of the Board of Supervisors and then we maintain them and or act upon them. So that board is set up so that it's actually a great board in the way it's set up because it's about as fair as you possibly can be Mm -hmm. it has two voting landlord or property owner Mm. seats two tenant seats and one neutral seat where they can't they're usually a homeowner a priest or so much that doesn't have a home and or doesn't own a home or doesn't rent an apartment so many of the decisions are not it's not that while it can be very adversarial but its reason always plays out. So that was the fact that I was able to be appointed by, was it Mayor Willie Brown, Mayor Gavin Newsom, former late Ed Lee. Then I decided it was time for new blood to go into that. But I've always been interested in how our city is shaped because we have a vested interest and we're gonna be here for, you know, hopefully for my children or my children's children, we're gonna still have our business. So seeing, being a part of the fabric that's shaping regulation and or planning and or zoning has been beneficial to us because we can say, like, for example, when they were talking about for years, we were trying to get in-law units legalized and or this ADUs or accessory dwelling right. units as a way for us to go ahead and to, as an industry, create more housing opportunities in a city and or in an area that doesn't want more growth or mm-hmm. what doesn't want more density. Mm-hmm. So for us, that allows us to go ahead and to pivot and to say, great, this is going to be coming down the track in five years and four years, we should start looking at, when we're looking at acquisitions, back properties that have the natural attributes that allow us to go ahead and to put in ADUs or in-law units as an, as an example.
1: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned your business going into the Tenderloin. So I, I lived adjacent to the Tenderloin for a long time, and I went to the airport every Two weeks for years and years and years because I had to fly all the time, and when I flew all the time, I drove through the Tenderloin at six in the morning to get to the airport to get to SFO, and the Tenderloin be tough. It's just people lying on the street just would break my heart every morning. Yeah. So talk about doing business in that area, which one would call transitional. This is not for the faint of heart in terms of a business owner. Let's talk about that. Well, I guess you know the the juxtaposition between what you might see. In that area,
0: and right. the name in itself is crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, the tenderloin—that's the best part of—that's the best part of, of meat for those that eat meat. Right. But and yet, the city, this area, what you have is, it is surrounded by Union Square, South of Market, knop Hill, the Van Ness Quarter. So it's just this its a very small area that the city is, or for powers that be, allowed behaviors that would not be acceptable in any other neighborhood. Allowed to occur there
1: and exacerbated during
0: COVID, and it, well. it's very exacerbated during COVID. So we've always realized, especially in these in this area or in other areas, whether it's in L.A. or in Oakland, is that you know it's really building by building, block by block. Mm-hmm. And so for us, you know, we understand. You know, you're seeing, hey, people are going ahead, and maybe we can help reshape what's the sense, proper sense of decorum in this in this area, or how do we go ahead and to work. Towards reducing some of the nuisance activities that occur, I think when we got, I think it was in about the mid '90s, uh, I started a, a 501c3 nonprofit community benefit organization called Adopt the Block, and it made me almost a pariah amongst many of my industry. And what we did with Adopt the Block is that we worked with our tenants and tenants in other buildings, concerned business people about using small claims court process to go ahead and effect change where people were recalcitrant building owners or recalcitrant businesses that allowed nuisance activities to permeate their buildings and have a negative effect. And I think that did a lot during that period of time, and that did a lot with that organizing outreach that we did, and we self-funded, that did a lot to go ahead and build a sense of community, and it didn't make affect some changes within that area. So. There are some blocks, you know, we saw as as the, you know, you know over the past 10 years, the Tenderloin became smaller and smaller and smaller. Right. People came up with these crazy na- new names, like Union Square West or Tender Knob or anything like that. So, you know, we're throughout the Tenderloin, we're throughout San Francisco. So we feel like we've always, because of our engagement and our activity, that we always have our pulse on what's going
1: on and what's occurring within the, into those areas. Mm-hmm takes a special patience and skill set to be able to deal in those communities and to deal in those communities as a for-profit landlord. and And let's play with that word for a few minutes. You and I talked earlier about, you know, landlord is tagged as one of the two worst words in the English language alongside developer, and we're both of them in our industry. Or use car salesman, I, I... And that's even, more, even worse, <laughs> thank even God.
0: Worse. <laughs> Trying to figure out which one. Um, you know, I, it's funny, I just had this conversation with my youngest daughter and who just, while school is in, uh, her college is shut down, came to work for the family. And so I, and she is a, a self-identified Marxist and does everything on her own. And so she did help us out during the COVID period, the shelter in place and our guest relations. And so I always joke with her, I said, well, you have to stop using the word landlord. It's such a futile concept that really shouldn't exist anymore. Right. And it, why don't we look at it as a housing provider or for-profit housing provider? But there's these words within our dictionary that just have this, you know, this, that just set off a relationship as being adversarial. So for us, working within these, seeing, you know, who are our clients, how we, we've, you know, tried and true on methods that actually can go ahead and make the living environment much better or improved upon for the existing tenants and also encouraging newer tenants to come into the areas as well.
1: It's interesting, though, because the, this <laughs> landlord concept becomes a least common denominator. And in the communities in which you're working and in the type of property in which you're working, that least common denominator might be louder than you are as a more responsible for-profit owner of rental housing. And, but the least common denominator are the headlines and the feeling and the emotions of the people when they're asked by a reporter, how do you feel they're going to go to that place? How do you deal in that kind of world?
0: I think the way the same tried and true ways that we've been operating for the last several decades, treat people with respect, build consensus, collaborate when possible, be active in your community. And, you know, my father, used to always, he had many sayings, but one of the ones I remember the most is just because you can doesn't mean you should.
1: Mm, Fair deal. We haven't talked about this, but in, in the conversation, but you're a person of color in the real estate business and in your community and now dealing with the investment community. So what does that perspective bring and what does that mean for you? Well, you know,
0: for most of my life, I never really looked at it as saying, you know, or being a person of color and that clouding or affecting how I work or what I do. I just looked at it more as an individual that I felt that I had to go ahead and improve myself. So I would say almost like my life might have been a revenge movie for all the people that just said I was never going to amount to anything or he has so much potential or, oh, because of the color of my skin, I couldn't date this person. Or maybe I should look at finding a trade as a plumber instead of, in hindsight, I look at, this is all racism, (laughs) you know. So I've always prescribed to going ahead and overworking and trying to overachieve and letting what my product or what we produce speak In volumes about who I am or who we are as a company.
1: Mm -hmm. And in these times post-George Floyd of lots and lots of attention on this subject, any comments on the investment community? Maybe now this is a benefit because people want to invest with people of color. So that may, on the other side of, okay, it's now my chance to do this I don't know the right way to ask that question, but I want to stick with this for a little while. uh, It's
0: kind of amusing because we never promoted ourselves. I mean, we were doing DEI existed since I was born, Uh you know, and even before that. And so just it's the tenets of our of our business of being able to promote for then and or even on the investment side. If we're looking for employees, we're not necessarily always looking for that person that has that pedigree or that blue blood. We're looking to go ahead and how can we expand our reach so that across our company, which is about 82% minority and, and women, how we can go ahead and to now increase our outreach into communities that might have been underserved and how we're looking at potential applicants, not based because they went to Harvard or they went to this uh, or Haas Business School or this or that, that they've actually have that tenaciousness, that hunger, the grit, because it is a, our product is a, is a hands-on product. And it's not always sitting in the ivory tower that you know that you can effectively run it many do but many are also not effective that way so we're more effective because we are very granular we're in our buildings we're touching our real estate smelling our real estate every day and i think that's what uh, one of the things that helps sets us apart i've got people that have gone ahead and started off as a security guard for us and that have made it to a director level mm-hmm. position so we're always looking to promote from within and to do our internal training long before there are these different training programs or mentoring programs and or this whole issue of DEI. What I was laughing about under the DEI is that when it started hitting the media, the amount of phone calls that that Jim would receive and or I would get saying, hey, I didn't realize you were black. And
1: <laughs> it was like, <laughs> did it make a difference?
0: But for some reason now, it does.
1: Right. Well, it's interesting. It's the combination of that as, as concept A and then as concept B, where in... The multifamily real estate investment world, workforce housing that's not subsidized, that may now be seen as an attractive asset class where before everyone was chasing class A brand new stuff, and now they're saying, wait a minute, on a risk-adjusted basis, this may make more sense as an investment.
0: That's correct. And I think what sets us apart is that the makeup of our employees or the makeup of our company is similar to the makeup of of our tenant base that it's diverse, it's culturally rich. And also the fact that many of our employees uh, grew up in these neighborhoods or still reside in these neighborhoods, there's a greater sense of accomplishment by being able to turn a building around and or finding satisfaction that that we're providing good, safe, clean, well-maintained, affordable housing.
1: Uh And so I think of your portfolio, I think of your business, I think of your size and scale. And I'm going to ask a question about technology and innovation and it's interesting because I think about newer portfolios in very large companies as able to afford technology and innovation, but small companies need to do this as well. You're a smaller company with portfolio of mostly older buildings. So how's technology enter into your business? Technology is a very critical portion of our
0: business and we implement and work with startups and nascent technology firms. Throughout California, as far, as a way of us either beta testing or finding other ways to go ahead and to share information, you know, I, actually our our COO, uh, I believe, headed uh, a department of innovation mm-hmm. with his previous employer. So I've always seen, you know, through the years and seen when, when we first went to uh, having computers or PCs on desks, a lot of software packages that'll come out that are supposed to be it, and the next best thing, and you never, you might use little bits, but all the bells and whistles never really work, or it's, you go back to some of the older tried and true methods. So for us, technology has been critical, and I'm told that we're actually on the leading edge of implementing technology from many of the software companies that we work with. So for us, being able to take, since we've been hoarders of data for years, I mean, decades, is having easy access to that data, so lessens the amount of, Deep dives and are having to pull invoices or things along that line, and I can see our. If it comes to whether it's like utilities or water or it's like, what is our cost in real time, how are we're looking at these trends, you know. So if, if I got some young manager and he's thinking, "Well, oh, I've made budget," and I'm saying, "You know, during COVID, I go, you made budget, but you're actually way over budget because now you're building, you know, which was always operating at about four percent vacancy has twenty percent like that. So it's allowed us to. Do what we do in a much faster, not glacially but globally short periods of time to make changes that can result in cost savings to uh, the building's ownerships.
1: Next to last question. I'm fascinated these days with how leaders cope with their lives. What do you do to kind of have some balance and coping in your life from particularly electronic things that are always in our faces?
0: That's, um, you know, balance is, I never have our time to even remember what that word is. It live, work, or life, work, balance, I think I, that's what they refer to it as. I eat it, I breathe it, I sleep it, is what we do. I blessed to go ahead and to be able to wake up and do and have this everything that it is about this business and this industry. You know, we've really expanded on our teams and it's I think much to do with my wife and or others of going ahead and saying, hey, you need to go ahead and to have time to recreate or just to step away. Or, you know, you're not going to go ahead and answer the phone on a a Saturday or look at emails on a Sunday unless, you know, my executive assistant texts me, so you have to tend to this right away. So finding that balance has been a challenge most of my life. I've never looked at it as being negative because I thoroughly enjoy everything that I do.
1: Mm -hmm. That's a fair deal. It's interesting. Uh, For me, I almost have to take an airplane across the country, which I haven't been doing, to clean out the email and have it not overhanging me, because I I find the weight of the unanswered emails and the undeleted emails kind of mind boggling. And like you, I'm so lucky that I love what I do. So, but it is the exhausting and never ending.
0: Yes. And so I tend to gravitate to places to go on vacation Uh or weekends away that have bad cell phone reception
1: (laughs) or poor internet coverage.
0: (laughs) So it's worked out fairly well. But it's, I think that's the problem throughout the world right now. And as, as human beings, we're just too connected. Yeah. And so, you know, we talk about this eight-hour work week and with the advance in technology, it's no longer a 40-hour work week or eight oh. hours a day. People are always on and you're not equipped as human beings. We have to have downtime. We need other types of stimulation. So how I can go ahead and promote that within the company or, or with my family of finding that, what is that word? Live life, work balance is very, very important. I used to believe that for most of my life sleeping five hours a night was a good night's sleep now i go ahead and on weekends i'm sleeping eight sometimes even nine hours or unheard of i almost feel guilty
1: yeah. congratulations
0: um, but finding that balance is, is more of that balance is important it's something i strive to and have people that are trying to help me get there
1: last question on leading voices is always your advice for a young person getting into this business
0: oh it's a great business to be in There's lots of opportunities and many facets of the real estate industry. I would say that to think big, to work hard, not be afraid to go ahead and to fail or to make mistakes, but just learn from your mistakes. And it can be a very enriching industry with a lot of opportunities that can not only translate to the bottom line,
1: but also translate to the change in communities that you operate within. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, as you've talked about this, both your passion for the business, the ability to make a difference in the business, and then just being able to get up in the morning and go, I can't wait to start doing this stuff. Yes. It's a blessing. It is. I'm very, very lucky. But I'll ask a final question. Is there anything I'm missing that you would have wanted to talk about to our listeners and in this conversation?
0: I think, yeah. I never talked about one of the things that my father instilled in us. And it was this... Idea of benevolent capitalism and that you can do more good by being a part of the community working for good than else in other manners. So for us, I think we've always looked at as being a part of the positive change is important and more good than the financial good of just doing whatever you can to go ahead and make money. So, you know, in many cases, um, you know, I, I think that for us as we go ahead and evolve And our next series. And I think this next iteration of what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be looking at acquiring market rate housing and then creating within that those structures, them actually being more government affordable housing as a way for us to go ahead and expand and then to increase housing opportunities for low and middle income people
1: in California. So drill down on that a little bit, I'm curious.
0: That could mean finding properties that are non-rent stabilized or in areas where rent stabilization or uh, rent control doesn't exist, but also are having supply issues for uh, providing affordable housing Mm -hmm. and being able to acquire those buildings and by utilizing tax strategies to encourage more investment and or investors into these properties because the tax advantages of providing moderate to low-income units.
1: Mm -hmm. That's a tax strategies of the low-income housing tax credit. That's a tax, is that? That's correct, Oh, so you'll do some tax credit. Bring tax credits to properties that aren't subsidized now. That's correct. Makes good sense.
0: Makes good sense financially, makes great sense socially. It's something that I'm surprised is not being explored more.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it's also a less expensive way for the taxpayer to put a unit into the low-income housing stock, it is to build fresh that's correct
0: when you live in a state in these urban areas where you have such high barriers to creating housing housing of any type and or looking at the cost of construction or the cost of uh, building materials is astronomical and so that's why we've seen that people are building class a which has been decimated in these urban areas during the pandemic but that's the only way they can make them pencil out. So for looking at this, similar to it's just the next evolution of what we can go ahead and do is that we can take market rate products and be able to go ahead and have people be in them and be safe from displacement and to have a fair and low income and or moderate rent levels.
1: Cool. Well, on that note, I'm gonna end our conversation. Thank you very, very much for being part of Leading Voices. Thank you, Matt. It was a pleasure being here today. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at TerraSearchPartners.com. See you next time.